Good morning, everyone. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here at Calvary, and I am so happy to be with you today. Although, truthfully, I wasn't actually planning to preach today. Some of you may have heard that Pastor Tom had a little situation this week and had to have his gallbladder unexpectedly removed. Thank you for praying for him and for Lucy. He is recovering and doing well. I was texting with him earlier, and he said, be sure to say hello to my friends for me. So, hello from Tom, and thank you for praying. We're grateful as a church for Pastor Tom and his leadership, and I can't tell you how personally grateful I am for him. I have learned so much from Tom over the years that I've been attending Calvary and serving alongside him, and I'm still learning from him. Um, Just this week, I learned that if you don't feel like preaching, have emergency surgery. (laughs) So I wrote that down in my little journal, and I'm sure that will come in handy for me at some point in the future. Okay, so we had the Christmas brunch yesterday, and Christmas Eve is three weeks from today. What are you hoping for this Christmas? Maybe like me, you're hoping for that perfect gift. So it's on your list, underlined, highlighted, circled, starred. So give a little nudge to that special someone so they might know what to get you. I don't know if you know this, but Christmas lists have gotten a little more sophisticated uh, recently. I got a Christmas list this week from my son via email. (laughs) He's 12. (laughs) Attached to the email was a slide deck (laughs) with a presentation of all the gifts that he's hoping for this Christmas, complete with pictures, and conveniently, links. (laughs) Dad, you just click and buy it. I don't even have to go to the store. Others of us are hoping that our holiday table will include someone that maybe hasn't been around it for a long time. And we're just hoping that they'll say yes to the invite this year. All of us are clearly hoping that the Broncos continue their stunning turnaround and make the playoffs because that would be the Christmas gift that keeps on giving. (laughs) Many of us, I think, just hope we can make it through the next month between school activities and events and parties and shopping and decorating. Many of you have finals coming. We're just hoping to hang on. We might even find ourselves at this point in the year, frankly, hoping for the holidays to just be over. Because for many of us, the holidays bring up pain around family. Or this is the first year without someone. The problem, though, is all those hopes, gifts, experiences, people, teams, They aren't guaranteed. You can't bank on them. So where do we find hope this holiday season? I'm so excited about our text today as we continue our study in the book of Revelation because there is real hope in it. Hope we can count on, believe in, trust in, and cling to. 
We're coming today into a new section in our study. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we've talked about one way you can think about the structure of the book of Revelation, sort of in three parts. It begins with the first three chapters where God speaks to the church in the city. You might remember this. There was a letter that was sent to seven churches, sort of a report card, how they were doing. These are things I like about you. These are things you could do better. That's the first three chapters of Revelation. Then the section that we've just been in, which is pretty extensive, chapters 4 through 18, we see God judging the great city, which in the symbolic language of the book of Revelation, the great city is known as Babylon. And it stands as an image, a visual, a picture for us of the great world empires throughout history that have pressured the people of God to turn away from the one they ought to look to, the Son of God, Jesus, and instead to be conformed into the image of the empire, whether it was the empire of the day when John had this vision and sent this letter to the churches, the Roman Empire, empires throughout the age, or some empire in the future that will be especially deceitful. We watched in this uh, section of Revelation God bringing his judgment over Babylon through a series of judgments. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls that were poured out and, and exercised God's judgment on the great city. And now today we move into what could be thought of as the final section of the book of Revelation where God redeems the holy city, his people. And it begins in chapter 19. During our study, we've talked about how this book can be viewed through the lens of things that have happened in the past. That this letter was sent to a, a group of people in the first century, and they had a perspective on it based on their life and experience. We've talked about ways that the book of Revelation is helpful for us today as we follow Jesus in the 21st century. We've looked at ways the revelation will speak to what happens in the future. And as we move to this new section today in these four chapters that we will be in through the end of the year, much of what we will be studying will be future focused. It speaks of what's to come. And that's why I think we can find real hope in it. Because while the world is going to tell us that hope can be found at Christmas, through presents, and people, and parties. The truth is that real hope, real hope is found in God's promised future. So turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 19. And in it today we're going to find three reasons to have hope in God's promised future. I love being in the book of Revelation because it's so easy to find. It's the last book in your Bible, so just turn there, and then to chapter 19, which is toward the end. And we're going to start right in the middle of this chapter, verse 11. This verse begins with a short phrase that is the first reason why I think we can have hope. John says this, Then I saw heaven opened. Then I saw heaven opened. This is a stunning 
phrase. God did not have to open heaven to us. But in his kindness, in his love and mercy and grace, God has chosen to open heaven so that we might see what is happening there, what God is like. This book is called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Another word for it is the apocalypse. That simply means revelation. It reveals what we need to know about Jesus, the Son of God. And it's like a window that opens into what is often the unseen realities of heaven and the spiritual world. Heaven is opened. And God has revealed to us everything we need to know about him. He didn't have to do that. But he has revealed to us all we need to know about him, about his holiness, about his character, about the kind of God that he is. He has revealed to us everything we need to know about ourselves, who we are as humans, and why he is in a class by himself. Why a God who is in heaven is altogether different than human beings on the earth. And he has revealed to us, because heaven is opened, that that gap between human beings and a holy God is not a gap we can close. It's not a bridge we can cross on our own. It requires God to take the initiative. And he has done so. He has opened heaven. And from heaven came his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who left heaven and came to earth to live and to die so that heaven would be opened for you. It's possible you're here today. You might describe yourself as an agnostic. I'm really glad you're here. Some of my friends who describe themselves as agnostics have said this to me. I believe there's a God. I just don't think I could ever understand what he would be like. I actually think that's a relatively humble perspective to have as a human. To understand that if there is a God, he may be difficult to comprehend. But the good news, my friends, is that God hasn't left us alone without an ability to understand what he is like. But instead, he has opened heaven. He has revealed all that we need to know about him. He has spoken to us. It's in his word. We can read it. And we can be welcomed in to heaven. Randy Alcorn, in the book he wrote, Called Heaven, describes how all human cultures throughout history have longed for an afterlife, for heaven to be open to them. Alcorn says, The sense that we will live forever somewhere has shaped every civilization in human history. Australian aborigines pictured heaven as a distant island beyond the western horizon. The early Finns thought it was a distant island in the faraway east. Mexicans, Peruvians, and Polynesians believed that they went to the sun or the moon after death. 
Native Americans believed that in the afterlife, their spirits would hunt the spirits of buffalo. Although these depictions of the afterlife differ, he says, the unifying testimony of the human heart throughout history is belief in life after death. Anthropological evidence suggests that every culture has a God-given innate sense of the eternal, that this world is not all there is. Heaven is open. Will you be there? How do you get there? Jesus described heaven in this way. He said it's like a mansion with many rooms. And he said to his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. And you know the way. And one of his disciples, I love this, said, hold on a second. I'm not really sure we do know the way. Can you tell us the way? How do we get there? What did Jesus say? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Heaven is opened through the way, Jesus Christ. He is the only way. But he has flung wide the gates of heaven for all who would enter, all who would call on the name of the Lord Jesus and say, Jesus, I surrender my life to you. And if you have done that, heaven is open for you. And you can have hope that one day in God's promised future, you will be present with him for all eternity. Verse 11 continues with one of the most magnificent visions of Jesus that we have in the Bible. And it's the second reason why we have hope. This is a vision of what will happen in the future. And we have hope for this reason, because Jesus is returning. The next six verses give us a perspective of Jesus that is otherworldly. I'm going to read them, and then we're going to kind of tease them out and unpack them for a few minutes. And as we read them, if you would, I'd like to ask you to stand. Because this vision of Jesus is awesome. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. 
On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. You can have a seat. That is, wouldn't you agree, a unique perspective of Jesus? John, who saw this vision of Christ and who wrote these words down for us, maybe more than anyone else, had an understanding of Jesus in all of his fullness. John was Jesus' best friend on the earth. He was with him nearly every day for three years. You learn a lot about a person when you spend that kind of time with them. He traveled with Jesus, learned with Jesus, laughed with Jesus, cried with Jesus. He ate meals with him. He listened to him teach. He watched him heal, saw him perform miracles, cast out demons. John witnessed Jesus raise people from the dead. He was with him on the mountain when Jesus revealed to him his true identity. When he pulled back the curtain and transfigured himself, it was glorious. And all John could do was fall on his face and worship Jesus. He was there when Jesus rode into Jerusalem with humility on the back of a donkey. He watched him get arrested, go through a sham trial. And then John watched Jesus die on the cross. John outran Peter when they heard that the tomb was empty. And then he saw the risen Lord many times, spoke with him, touched him, ate with him. He watched as Jesus ascended into heaven. And then he saw this vision. Now John had the benefit of witnessing with his eyes all of these experiences with Jesus. But just like John, who saw Jesus both in his humble humanity and in his glorious divinity, we too need to see Jesus for who he is in all of his fullness. Too often, we try to contain Jesus, put him in a box. That's why I think people can handle Jesus at Christmas. There's nothing threatening about a baby. But the Jesus of Revelation 19 is altogether different. John says he rides a white horse. Jesus is coming to conquer. A horse is a symbol of war. And our divine warrior is faithful and true. How we long for leaders in our day who will just tell us the truth and be faithful to what they have promised. Jesus will never let you down. 
He never goes back on his word. He won't disappoint you. Jesus is a righteous judge. All of his ways are just and right. Nothing ever happens outside of Jesus' will and goodness. If any of you long for things to be made right in the world, he is the one who can do it. It won't happen through politics or education or a social agenda. Jesus is the true righteous judge. His eyes are like a flame of fire. We've seen this description in an earlier vision. Jesus sees everything. Nothing is hidden from his sight. His eyes pierce through our deception and see us for who we really are. And yet, he loves us in spite of ourselves. On his head are many crowns. That's what the word diadems means. We've seen the beast and the dragon and these evil figures. They have crowns too, but their crowns can be counted. Jesus's can't because his authority is unlimited. No one has more authority than Jesus Christ. And to be clear, the authority of Jesus Christ is greater than any earthly authority, more powerful than any leader or political system. Jesus has a name that no one knows. As much as he has revealed about himself to us, there is a depth to Jesus that is ultimately beyond our knowledge or comprehension. Jesus Christ is in a class by himself and cannot be contained. He has a name that no one knows. His robe is dipped in blood. Whose blood? His own. Jesus is the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world, for my sins and yours. And he laid his life down for us. He shed his own blood so that we might be forgiven. He is called the Word of God. I wonder if when John saw that, it reminded him of what he had written in the gospel about Jesus in the first chapter. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Jesus Christ is the Word of God incarnate. He leads the armies of heaven. And look at what they're wearing. The armies of heaven are wearing fine linen, which doesn't seem like the best outfit for a battle, does it? Why linen? Who in the first century would have worn fine linen? Priests. You are a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession, and the linen is white and pure. Why? Because of his blood-stained robe. You have been washed and sanctified and justified by the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes with a sharp sword in his mouth. 
For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of souls and spirit and joints and marrow. And it discerns the thoughts and intentions of every heart. Notice the sword. His only weapon is not in his hand. It comes from his mouth. Now remember, this is an image. But you remember in an earlier vision what Jesus was holding in his hand? The seven stars, which we're told are the seven churches. Jesus holds the churches in his hand and out of his mouth comes the sword. We don't have time to look at the final verses in chapter 19, but that describes essentially the end time battle. The armies of the world line up to oppose Jesus and his army. And if you read it, you notice there is no battle. Jesus just shows up and speaks, and it's over. Because Jesus spoke into existence all things in heaven and on earth. And with a word, it is finished and over. From his mouth comes the sharp sword. He rules with a rod of iron. A rod, of course, is used by a shepherd to care for and lead his sheep. And the rod that Jesus shepherds with is strong, unbreakable, made of iron. He rules the nations with it despite what the nations may think. And he brings justice. The kind that we look for and long for. How can he do all of this? Because John says his name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There is no one like Jesus. No one like our God. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. One of the great themes of the last book of the Bible is how world empires force allegiance to their structures and systems and rulers and place themselves in a position that is reserved for God. It happened in the first century when John saw this vision and sent this letter to the seven churches. Those followers of Jesus were being pressured into giving their ultimate allegiance to the empire of their day, Rome, where Caesar demanded worship of his subjects. But Rome isn't the only world empire to pressure its people into conformity. It's happened throughout the age. It will happen in the future. That's what we've seen over the last section we've been in, how the church past, present, and future will be tempted to conform, not first and foremost, into the image of Jesus, but into the image of the empire of the day, which Revelation refers to as Babylon. To be pressed into the mold of the world and all of its desires, and the people of God throughout history must be on guard against the deceitfulness of the world and its empires. One world leader 
who demanded allegiance during the 18th century was the French king, Louis XIV. He ascended to the throne at the age of four. He reigned longer than any documented monarch in world history for 72 years. During his life, France became the leading power in Europe. He cemented this power through a number of wars, which he particularly enjoyed. His favorite title for himself was Louis the Great. He was known for telling his advisors, I am the state. He is perhaps best known for building his extravagant palace at Versailles. Lavish and opulent, it was meant to glorify the one they called the Sun King and to demonstrate the vast power and authority of Louis the Great. As you might imagine, Louis had very specific instructions for his funeral service upon his death. It was to be held in the great French cathedral, Notre Dame. His body was ordered to lay in a golden coffin. To dramatize his greatness, instructions had been given that the cathedral would be very dimly lit with only one special candle that was to be set above Louis the Great's coffin. At his funeral, the thousands of people in attendance waited in silence. Then his hand-picked funeral speaker, Bishop Jean-Baptiste Massillon, stood to speak. To begin the eulogy of Louis the Great, Massillon slowly reached down, blew out the only candle, and from the darkness spoke these words. Only God is great. There is no one like him. And he is coming back. You can count on it. And hope in his return. Real hope is found in God's future promises. Heaven is opened and Jesus is returning. As we move in our service towards communion, we're going to look at the third reason we have hope in God's promised future. And it's this, that we are invited. Invited to what? Read with me back in verse 6 of chapter 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. What are we invited to? The marriage supper 
of the Lamb. What we would call a wedding reception. A party celebrating the marriage of the Lamb and his bride. A metaphor that's used throughout the Bible to describe God's relationship with his people, both in the Old Testament and New. In the vision, who is the Lamb? Jesus. And his bride is the church. The people whom he has redeemed, bought with a price. And this is a picture of the future where all who have called on the name of Jesus are at this party celebrating that the old way of things has gone and the new has come. That we are now with Jesus in his presence. No longer suffering or separated, but with him forever. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. How do you get invited? You ask Jesus to save you. You surrender to him, who he is, the King of Kings. And you say, Jesus, I recognize that you are in a class all by yourself, that I am nothing like you, that I have sinned and fallen short of who you are. And so I call on your name for forgiveness and salvation. I, if you will, RSVP to the party. I accept the invitation. I wonder if this invite's gotten lost for some of you. Put underneath a stack of other things you want to get to first. Maybe you're worried that when you open it, it's not really an invitation, it's more of a bill. Things you'll have to do to get there. Not this invite. There's no strings attached. It's an all-expense-paid trip to this destination wedding party. Jesus has done everything that needs to be done in order for you to be there. All you have to do is accept his invitation and join him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so this meal that we're going to share together in a moment, communion, a bread, bread and a cup, It's an image of this meal that we will one day share together at this wedding party. It's meant to remind us of what Jesus did so that we could join him there. I'd encourage you as you eat and drink to remember his robe dripped in blood, his own. And remember that he's done everything for you so that you can join him at this great marriage supper. You can have hope, my friends. Real hope in God's promised future because heaven is opened. Jesus is returning and you are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you're helping to serve communion, would you come?
Lord Jesus, we worship you. We come before you now as we celebrate this meal and remember all that you have done for us. That you freely paid the penalty that we deserve to pay and laid your life down to accomplish what only you could. The reconciliation of humans and a holy God. And so as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we remember your sacrifice. And we cling to the hope that we have in what you have promised in the future. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.